0: Hello, and welcome to the latest ClearBridge podcast. This is Jeff Schulze, CFA Investment Strategist at ClearBridge Investments. ClearBridge is a global equity manager with $146 billion in assets under management committed to delivering long-term results through authentic active management. We integrate ESG considerations into our fundamental research process across all strategies. As we finish off the Thanksgiving leftovers and head into the holiday season, it's hard to believe we are about to put another year into the record books. In addition to hosting this podcast, I spend most of my time seeking to gauge the direction of the economy through ClearBridge's Anatomy of a Recession program. And boy, has AOR been put to the test this year with four months and counting of a red or recessionary signal for our recession risk dashboard. After grinding through an unprecedented 2020 turned upside down by the COVID-19 pandemic, in a transitory 2021, when inflation started to rear its head, I would characterize 2022 as the year of the pivot. The only problem is that long-awaited pivot by the Fed has yet to materialize. To help me prognosticate on the timing of a reversal monetary policy and sort through what's ahead for the economy and equity markets, joining me for our sixth annual Outlook podcast is Josh Jamner. Josh is an investment strategy analyst, my co-author and a regular presenter of ClearBridge's AOR program. Josh, welcome back to the booth. And we'll also make our annual predictions in what I consider my favorite podcast of the year, ClearBridge Economic Outlook 2023, Handicapping the Most Anticipated Recession Ever. Josh, good to have you here live. I think this is the first one we've done live in about
1: three years. It is the first one live we've done in three years. I remember when we did the first virtual one back uh, two and a half years ago. Uh, it's good to be back in person.
0: Well, hopefully we don't go back to virtual podcasts. You'll you lose a little bit of that connectivity uh, when you're talking over the phone versus in person. But I know that we've done several of these over the years. And what we typically do is we think about a song that encapsulates the environment that we're in or we're heading into. I think at the beginning I had started with the Beatles. You went with Led Zeppelin. I think you had gone with children's songs last time, given the fact that we have young kids at home. Thinking about a song about today as we head into 2023,
1: what are your thoughts there? So initially, I was going to go with a song, Little Secrets by Passion Pit. I'll spare you my singing voice, but the chorus goes up and up. I keep climbing higher and higher and higher. Higher and higher and higher. I think that's probably not the most relatable song. Pesha Pits a little bit newer. I think that song came out maybe 10, 12 years ago. So I'm going to go with actually sticking in sort of a classic genre, maybe not classic rock, but one of the classics. I'm going to go with Hard to Handle. I think it's originally an Otis Redding song. Some might know the Grateful Dead cover. Some might know that Black Crowes covered it probably about 30 years ago now, maybe 20 years ago about now. They're probably the best known version. But I think that Hard to Handle is a pretty fitting song title to go with to encapsulate today. What about you, Jeff?
0: All right. I like it. I like it. That's a lot of hires right there. I had a tough time picking my song. I was going to go with Can't Get No Satisfaction, talking about Powell and the Fed and everything that's uh, happening with inflation. Also thought about patience with Guns N' Roses as we head into our first recessionary drawdown in 15 years. Uh, having a durable bottom is going to take some patience and it's going to see a lot of countertrend rallies. But after debating that, I'm going to go with Tom Petty. I won't back down. And I, I will not save everybody from my singing voice. I'm going to go for it. <laughs> hey, baby, there ain't no easy way out. Hey, baby, I will stand my ground and I won't back down. I mean, now everybody knows why I'm in finance and not in singing. That career would have been very short. But I think that really does encapsulate the Fed, right? There's no easy choice here and they aren't going to back down and they're going to continue to move forward until inflation comes under control because they don't want to repeat of the 1970s. So, you know, I think that's going to be what we're going to have to deal with next year. And I think a recession is going to be a high probability because of, of that stance. But in kind of taking a step back here, right? Obviously, unprecedented was the word of 2020. Transitory, obviously, was last year's word. And this year's is pivot. And we've yet to get a pivot quite yet. But in order to have one conceivably, inflation needs to get back down to the Fed's 2% target. And after October CPI reprint, obviously that was the catalyst for this rally that we've seen over the last couple of months. And obviously the best news we've seen on that front in a while. What are your views there? I mean, is this just a one-off print or can we anticipate some lower inflation and, you know, dare I say maybe a pivot as we look out on the horizon?
1: You know, I think one print does not make a trend, but we're certainly seeing an evolution in what's going on in inflation. If we were sitting here a year ago, or 18 months ago, and we were talking about inflation, we would have been talking about used cars and furniture and sort of these pandemic influence categories. That was what was driving inflation higher. When we talk about today, it's much more of a services problem. Supply chain bottlenecks have eased. In fact, just last week, The Marine Exchange of Southern California, they're the people that run the ports of Los Angeles, Long Beach, and some other ports in that region. Which obviously had issues. There were over 100 ships waiting to anchor about a year ago. They declared that the ship backlog at the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach was officially back to normal seven days ago, eight days ago, just just last week. So we see it in the data, too. Goods deflation last month, things like used cars, furniture, are actually coming down in prices on a broad basis. The pandemic categories and even some of the other areas in goods are, are seeing price decreases, not, not just going up at a slower pace, or are actually coming down in, in price. The problem now is in services. Now, a big chunk of that is in shelter. That's very well covered in the media. Owner's equivalent rents is rising. It's likely to stay high into 2023. There are some other categories, though, in services. It's not just a shelter problem. We've had a headwind in terms of higher inflation coming from healthcare services. That's really a function of calculation and, and how insurance premiums flow through into CPI. That's turning around. That should be a modest drag. So there's some good news there. But we do see broad-based services strengthening. And that's concerning because services tend to be stickier. And so I think when the Fed looks into the details of inflation prints, Yes, things are heading in the right direction, but the internals, it's not like there's an all clear sign. Now, I said earlier, there's some good news that healthcare headwinds going to become a tailwind in terms of lower inflation going forward for the next 12 months, most likely. We're also seeing a lot of the leading indicators of inflation, suggesting that knock on wood, maybe this time inflation actually has peaked. And a couple of stats that I think maybe support this view, things like the ISM Prices Paid Survey, that really led inflation higher. It started to spike in late 2020 into early 2021. It typically leads inflation by about nine months. It peaked at 92 all the way back in June 2021. It had a second peak at 87 in March of this year. And it's really collapsed. It's down in the 40s, 45.9 in the last reading. What's that consistent
0: with? Is it like a 2% inflation level? I'd I'd say,
1: yeah, it'll get us back down towards that path. But again, it tends to lead by about nine months. So we're looking at maybe like a second quarter timeframe to see some disinflation pressure from from that specific measure. It's not just that. One of the other things we look at is producer prices, right? So everyone focuses on CPI, which is consumer prices. Producer prices tend to be much more volatile. They also tend to kind of move first. Producer prices peaked back in June, it looks like. Now, they're still running about 11%, so let's moderate our views at just how low (laughs) inflation is going to get. They're still at at a huge number, but 11 is a lot less than 18, so they've rolled over pretty hard since mid-year, and ultimately, I think when we talk about where inflation is heading, I'm sitting here a year from now, we're going to be talking about less inflation than a year ago, but probably still higher than the pre-pandemic trend in the absence of additional intervention.
0: Well, I'm going to ask you a question about where you think inflation will be at the end of this podcast, but we'll save that for a little bit later. But obviously, inflation is going to be lower. Consensus has inflation, CPI at 3.1 percent in December of 2023. It brings up a valid point, right? Is that going to be low enough for a Fed pivot, right? For the Fed to feel comfortable not only pausing, but maybe even reversing course and doing some rate cuts. And thinking about the Fed, I, I don't think that's going to be the case, right? Because Thinking about from the Fed's vantage point, they want lower demand, they want lower trend GDP growth. We're not seeing it yet. GDP Now, which is an excellent now casting tool that looks at all of the releases that have happened for fourth quarter GDP and what would the output be today if it was released? It's running north of 4%, right? The economy's not cratering. You have continued consumption. The labor market's hot. Core, although it's come down, core inflation still running well ahead of the Fed's 2% target. So, you know, in my opinion... I think the Fed policy is kind of going from autopilot to data dependent, but the path of least resistance is still higher from here, right? So I think that is going to be an important consideration when kind of assessing what's the economic consequences and whether or not we're going to have a recession. And right now, terminal pricing for the Fed funds rate or peak Fed funds is 5%. I personally take the over on that. I think that the economy is gonna be a little bit more resilient And it's going to create the impetus for the Fed to maybe hike more from here. I mean, would you agree with that? Would you think that's probably kind of spot on?
1: Yeah, yeah, I would agree. I think that the policy path from here, we're we're moving into a different phase of Fed tightening. As you said, we were sort of on autopilot over the last couple of months in terms of getting from basically zero rates to something into restrictive territory, doing enough to start to bring down inflation. I talked about absence of additional intervention. I think that the market is expecting some additional tightening, not just from rate hikes, but from further reductions in the size of the balance sheet through the QT program. Now, you mentioned potential of a Fed pivot. You know, I think that like, that's a word that what, gets thrown out, but, but what do you think nobody actually is? knows what it means. I think that you have to differentiate. To me, a pivot is not slowing down the pace of rate hikes, and actually, it's not even stopping interest rate hikes. I think, to me, a pivot is cuts. And the reason for that that is the Fed wasn't going to raise rates to the moon in the parlance of our times, or at least in cryptocurrency space. They weren't just going to keep hiking 75 basis points every meeting until the end of time. So ultimately, the Fed was going to have to slow down and stop interest rate hikes at some point. That That was always in the cards. So to me, that's an evolution in where we are in the phase of monetary tightening more than it is a directional shift, whereas cuts would be a directional shift. To me, that's what a pivot is. Now, I think the markets might like the signs of slowing and eventually stopping interest rate hikes. It's less of a headwind. The absence of bad news is certainly good news. But ultimately, I think the job isn't done. The Fed is going to talk tough right up until the moment they shift. We go back to last year, the end of last year into the, into the first quarter of this year of 2022, the Fed was saying, we're not raising, we're not raising, we're not raising, we're not raising. Okay, we're raising. Right. So right up until the moment that they want to pivot, they're going to kind of keep on this talk tough, very, very forceful because
0: chest because out. They need to. The market's going to front run them. You're going to have looser financial conditions and it's going to create more inflationary pressure.
1: Absolutely. So I think their actions will speak louder than their words as we move into this next phase of monetary tightening. But I do think there's an underlying truth when various Fed officials say the job isn't done. Inflation is still at way too high of a number. They might be heading in the right direction, but we are not there yet. So I think that we are going to see further tightening and that the prospects of a pivot I don't think we should actually be cheering quite yet. To get cuts, right, to get what I think a pivot truly is, to get cuts in the near term likely means kind of a collapse in the economy, right? We need to see negative job prints. We need to see clear signs that GDP is slowing down, that we're entering a recession, and the Fed needs to reverse course. And at that point, you know, from an equity investor perspective, That's a really bad situation. Earnings risk is going to more than overwhelm any benefit you're going to get from some higher multiples coming from lower discount rates. And I don't know that investors should be cheering a Fed pivot as willing as they seem to at least embrace it.
0: Well, if you look at the last number of recessions, when the Fed actually cuts, the markets get a lot worse before bottoming and and starting to move higher. But I, I think the Fed is going to keep the Fed funds rate high for a prolonged period of time. We have a proprietary recession risk dashboard. It's been red since August, so it's been four months. And it's continued to get to a deep red at this point. But the one thing I want to mention is that the Fed has done or projected to do 4.75% of interest rate hikes in the first year of this tightening cycle. That is easily the second most tightening you've seen to start a tightening cycle since 1955, only trailing 1980 when Paul Volcker had to break the back of inflation. And that's a lot of tightening to swallow, and it's yet to fully hit the economy at this point. So thinking about the red signal that we have in our dashboard, given the fact that the markets are still pricing in another 75 to basis points to 1% of tightening to come, I think obviously that means that a recession is potentially on the horizon. But the reason why I don't think that pivot's coming, and it's gonna come a lot later to be able to stave off a recession, if you look back to the last 13 Fed tightening cycles, the Fed has been able to engineer a soft landing three times. 1966, 1984, and 1995. And what all three of those instances had in common was a Fed that recognized economic weakness early, reversed course and cut, and let those expansions continue to move forward. But in those three instances, you had a very different reaction with inflation once the Fed cut. In 84 and 95, core CPI actually moved down three years after that cut, In 1966, core inflation almost doubled, going from three to 6%. Now, what was the key difference? Well, in 84 and 95, you actually had a lot of slack in the labor market. You had a high unemployment rate. In 1966, the unemployment rate was south of 4%. And the reason why I think this is really important, the unemployment rate as of today is 3.7%. So it's a very tight labor market. And I think the Fed recognizes if they don't create enough slack in the labor market, have a higher unemployment, if they pivot right now, they risk, again, doing the sins and repeating the sins of what we saw in the late 60s into the 1970s. So what's starting off as a temporary pandemic-induced inflationary scenario becomes more protracted over the medium and long term.
1: And Powell has said the costs of doing a little bit too much now are less than doing too much now, right? He'd rather choke inflation out now, make sure it's not going to become a problem, rather than have to back off early and then five years from now have a, a 1980s all over again. I think if you asked him, he would much rather be known as the next Paul Volkler than the next Arthur Burns. No Fed chair wants to be known as the next Arthur Burns. Right. And and no no Fed chair
0: committee wants a recession. Let's be clear about that. But is, is a more mild recession today better than a very deep and maybe double dip recession like we saw in the early 80s? And, you know, everybody would say yes to that. So that's why I don't think a Fed pivot defined as cuts is going to be coming anytime soon. And when they do come, I think we're already into that recessionary sell-off, and there's clear signs that the labor market has turned, and everything that you would normally associate with a recession becomes blatantly obvious.
1: Yeah, and you know, that's a good point. No recession is the same as history, but there is sort of a somewhat typical progression that plays out. If we look back to 2020 and the pandemic, that was unusual, right? It was like a car slamming into a wall. Everything just came to a stop for obvious reason. Typically, it's a little more like a slow motion car wreck. You're watching things play out over a a much more protracted period, and that's kind of what it feels like we're in today. As you said, we've had a red signal on the dashboard for the last four months. It feels like, as you were alluding to, a recession's not a today issue. It's a, whether second quarter, third quarter, fourth quarter, it's sort of somewhere on the horizon, and we're stumbling down the path towards one, unfortunately. Um, Stumbling's a good word. (laughs) And things are kind of playing out somewhat in the vein of what you might expect if you were to say, well, the Fed's dramatically tightened interest rates, and, and we've seen both long and short-term interest rates move up. Most of the most interest rate-sensitive portions of the economy are what is showing the most pronounced weakness, housing market in particular. We've sort of seen activity grind to a halt. We've had, I believe, two or three months of negative prices nationally, home price Yep, three, three months, sort of kind of following this typical path. I think from here, what we're really watching for is you know one of the last things to roll over is the labor market. Now, there's good reasons for that, but that's why unemployment rate is traditionally a lagging indicator, not a leading indicator. It's one of the last things that goes. And before we can maybe get into kind of the health of the labor market and trying to judge just where we are, I think it's worth talking about why that is the case. Firing workers is typically one of the last levers that corporations like to pull. When companies start to come under pressure, before you see layoffs there's a number of steps that companies like to take. You'll see hiring freezes, right? You'll see companies trying to cut down on unnecessary travel and expenses. They'll say you can only travel to see clients, no more internal meetings or, you know, no more big sales conferences or something like that, trying to cut down on costs rather than lay off a worker for a number of reasons. Even after that, you know, at big big kind of more mature companies, you'll see things like voluntary buyouts. Well, they'll try to get, you know, entice older workers who might be two or three years away from retiring, typically are very highly paid, to retire early, give them a payout and replace them with some kind of younger and cheaper. Ultimately, you kind of see the last step a company takes is actually laying off workers. And I think in the current environment, there's a pretty reasonable chance that companies are even more hesitant than normal to fire workers for two reasons. First, if you go back to the global financial crisis, I think one of the lessons from that was that companies overfired. And then it really cost them on the other side of the recession. If you were sitting down with CFOs or CEOs in 2010, 2011, 2012, a very common refrain was We don't have enough staff and we're missing out on opportunities right now because we just don't have the bodies in place to go after and capture sales that are out there. So I think that was one of the lessons coming out of the GFC, and, and people still remember that. But even much more pressing and, and more top of mind, I think, for many is that in the last cycle, as, as short lived as it might have been, kind of post pandemic, The scarcest resource was labor, right? If we were sitting here a year ago or 18 months ago, we could easily have a conversation for an entire podcast about the proliferation of help-wanted signs that were absolutely everywhere. So with that still fresh on the mind, how difficult it was to add workers, I think companies might be a little bit more hesitant than normal to lay workers off, which again, is not a decision that they take lightly. This impacts people's lives. And so I think that there's a decent chance that companies are slower and potentially more surgical with layoffs as we move into 2023. But ultimately, unfortunately, I do think that they are coming.
0: Look, and we've heard these anecdotes of these larger companies laying off employees recently. I mean, Meta obviously let go of a huge swath of their sales force, Twitter. You know, you've heard these larger companies, but if you look at the data, a vast majority of people are actually employed by small businesses, right? 78% of people are employed by companies with less than 250 people, or there's 78% of job openings. And over 90% of the job openings today are actually through these small businesses. So while you're hearing this anecdotal evidence of these larger companies letting go of employees, small businesses are, are still holding on to them. And until you start to see them let go of their employees, you're not gonna have a recession, right? And it comes back to margins. Margins have just started to peak. Labor's scarce. A lot of companies, rightfully so, if they haven't seen the economy roll over, why would you let go of your employee when you know that's been the hardest thing to get into your business over the last two years.
1: And I think the layoffs we have seen have been fairly concentrated in the technology sector by and large. You can make a, an argument that there might've been a little bit more excess in that space over the last decade or so, but you really haven't seen widespread layoffs in other industries. There's been a couple of examples, but a lot of other industries are earlier in this process. So FedEx for load workers a couple of weeks ago, CH Robinson which is a freight trucking company they work in a similar space they did some layoffs but it's really been technology focused and we're not seeing this emanate through and, into other industries just quite yet.
0: Yeah, I think I think it's going to take some time obviously. But again, I would have if we had this podcast about 5 months ago I would have said the labor market would have been the key to a soft landing, right? Very strong labor market continue to muddle through here even though growth may slow with what the Fed's trying to accomplish. I would argue again back to that 1966 soft landing example that the labor market now is the Achilles heel and the more resilience that you're gonna see there, the more demand there is, the higher the inflationary impulse, the more uncomfortable the Fed is going to be in pivoting and cutting and prolonging this expansion. And one of the things that you're you're looking at is whether or not you could have the immaculate slackening. This idea that job openings are at 10.3 million, which is about 3 million more than the pandemic. Can that come down in a more meaningful fashion, slow wage growth, without creating upper pressure on the unemployment rate. Now, it's never happened before. And, you know, it could happen. There's been a lot of firsts with this recession and recovery, so it's certainly a plausible outcome. But again, can that happen and make the Fed comfortable? And I I keep coming back to the answer is no. I think the Fed really needs to see some labor slack, which means layoffs coming down the pike. But, you know, obviously this all funnels through to market implications, right? If this is the most anticipated recession ever, which I don't think there's any argument there, I think everybody thinks a recession is coming and reflexivity, if everybody thinks a recession is gonna come, it's probably gonna be a a self-fulfilling prophecy. What does the market do, right? Now, so markets have priced in a lot of negativity, but this year has been all multiple compression with forward multiples going from 21 times earnings down to 16 and change on the S&P 500. Is there more pain to come? I mean, we've been talking about this idea that we expected a counter-trend rally, pocket of market strength, in October because of how negative sentiment was in positioning. Do you think that we'll revisit the lows or possibly break through?
1: Unfortunately, yes. And the reason for that is earnings just haven't really come down yet. We've seen earnings are down on a forward basis about almost just under 4% from peak that would be much more consistent with the soft landing than it would even a shallow recession. And as and widely anticipated that this is, and you have conversations with counterparts kind of across the industry, everybody, I think, expects earnings to come down, but nobody agrees on how much. And third quarter earnings, I think, is a great example of this. Everybody expects earnings misses, everyone expects lower guidance. And yet, when you look at what happened in the last earnings season, last reporting season, a company missed and guided down and got Absolutely short. It was ugly. It was ugly. It was like dodging landmines. I mean, every day there was something blowing up, or multiple things blowing up. It was a really ugly, difficult earnings season. There was a, a very severe skew. Companies that were beating on both the top. And bottom line, we're, we're barely being rewarded, whereas companies missing on both the top and bottom line. We're down like 5 6% relative in like two days.
0: So it's not priced. Uh, on
1: average. So it just I don't think it is fully priced in. We agree the direction. We don't agree the magnitude, we being the royal we, the, the financial industry. So I think in the near term, even into the intermediate term, it leads to continue to favor what we've been talking about for more than a couple months now, but defensive sectors, quality, bias. You know, I think that there are some silver linings here when you have periods of elevated volatility, wider dispersion. That tends to be a better environment for active managers. We're seeing that so far this year. Active managers in aggregate are having their best year since 2009, so we're on pace for, for a pretty healthy year for active. You know, I think elevated volatility also leads you to focus a little bit more on income. Right. A more steady source of returns. When you're thinking about you can get returns from multiple expansion, from earnings growth or from dividends, particularly companies with that have an ability to grow dividends, I think is is another area to focus. And then longer term, whether we're heading for a recession, that recession isn't going to last forever. Right. At some point, there's going to be an opportunity where things turn around. And that time might not be yet, even though the market is down 17, 18% from peak. At some point, when we're thinking out over the next three, five years, a lot of the conversations I've been having with portfolio managers back in the office has been, where are the opportunities going to be for the next cycle? You know, if we're going to be entering an environment that we think is a little bit faster growth, a little bit higher inflation, probably higher volatility as well, we know that we can't nail the bottom. We can't tie markets so let's use this time now to try and put some ideas up on the whiteboard so that when the opportunity presents itself, we can strike. We've done the work ahead of time. We need to kind of market to market. And I think it varies. Some portfolio managers want to start a small position today. Others want to be a little bit more patient and, and they all have their own mandates and, and styles of how they like to go about this. But I think it varies. Some people are a little bit willing to dip a toe into consumer. There's more hesitant there. Other area that kind of looks interesting is, is maybe materials where, where a fair bit's been discounted as well. But I think that's sort of where we lean in from what this might mean for markets looking ahead.
0: Yeah, well, you make a valid point, Josh. Uh, the second leg of a bear market, which is multiple uh, earnings expectations coming down 4% so far, give or take. The last three recessions, earnings have gone down from peak to trough expectations 25.8%. So still being priced into the markets actively. But the one thing I will mention, if you look at all bear markets since 1940, once you enter into bear market territory, traditionally the markets go down another 15.6%. But we had bought the day you hit bear market territory, which is negative 20%, you would have been up 4.1% six months later. So, even with that negative pressure downward, up 11.8% 12 months later. And mind you, we went into bear market territory officially about five months ago. So, we're not far off. Uh, you know, that bottom might come a little bit earlier than, than people are anticipating. So, obviously, a good opportunity for longer term investors to think about this market legging in. I want to close really quickly with our speed round. We do this every time. Uh, Probably (laughs) look into the crystal ball and magic eight ball and and make our predictions last year scott glasser our cio got all three questions right me and you got two questions right about inflation the market returns and then best sector we all picked energy let's talk about inflation again and consensus expects cpi to be 3.1 percent in december 2023 you taking the over or the under
1: i'll take the under
0: I'm gonna take the under. I'm gonna be contrarian with you. I'm gonna take the over just because I was wrong on inflation last year. Let's see if I'm I, wrong I, again. I,
1: I'm taking the under in part to be contrarian. because I thought you'd take the over.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Do we want to switch this? No, <laughs>
1: no. I'm gonna stick with the under. It, I think if we have a recession, things can things can cool down pretty dramatically late in the year.
0: Officially inked in there. Okay, S&P 500, four thousand, over or under? I'll take the over this time of the podcast next year. Yeah, I'll take the over. You know, I think it's gonna tale of two halves. Me I too. think at that time we're in rally mode. I think we're over that as well. Last one, uh, in, the sen- in the sense of time here, best sector again, we all picked energy last year. We we're all correct. What's your best sector for 2023? I'm
1: going to take healthcare.
0: Healthcare. I'm going to go to the the well again. Usually an object in motion tends to stay in motion. Energy has been doing great with oil, back down below $80. Energy stocks have been doing good. I think energy is going to be the best sector again in 2023. Bold called right there. That is bold. All right. Well, that's uh, all the time that we have here today. We've covered a lot of ground. Josh, again, my favorite podcast of the year, prognosticating about next year. Thank you for joining me here in The Booth Live.
1: Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to be here.
0: And I want to thank all of you for listening today. We hope that you have a safe and happy holiday season and hope that you'll join us for the podcast that we'll have in 2023. Have a great rest of the year and take care. please note the following. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The opinions and views expressed in today's podcast are of the individual speakers as of November 30th, 2022, and may differ from other managers or the firm as a whole and are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Any statistics reference have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of this information cannot be guaranteed. Neither ClearBridge Investments nor its information providers are responsible for any damages or losses arising from any use of this information.